By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information and that the views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views, or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded. My name is Scott Phillips, Head of Emerging Markets at Moody's, and today we're going to be digging deep into the fascinating world of Islamic finance. Now we know that 2022 was a very challenging year in both emerging markets and developed markets, but the issuance of Sharia compliant financing instruments known as Sukuk held up relatively well. And we observed continued growth in both the size of Islamic financing assets and their penetration in core Islamic markets. In many ways, Islamic finance bucked the trend. In fact, Many of the global hubs for Islamic finance, particularly those in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, have benefited in recent months from higher commodity prices. So will these trends continue? To help answer the question, I'm joined today by two great guests. I'm proud to welcome Sahail Ali to the podcast. He's a partner at DLA Piper, and amongst his many responsibilities, leads the firm's global Islamic finance disputes practice. Just one thing to note, that the views expressed by Sahel in today's episode are his own and do not reflect Moody's views. I'm also joined by my colleague Natish Bajnagawala from Moody's office in Dubai. Welcome to you both. Now let's get right into it. Natish, I'm going to come to you first. I mean, we've been covering Islamic finance together for, for many years. Um, so how do you see its role more broadly in, in global finance? And if I can say, Islamic finance is probably seen by many as a somewhat niche in, in global finance. So is, is that your view? Or do you think growth is going to continue along the lines of, of other capital market instruments? Or, or are you still expecting a big t- takeoff for Islamic finance in the future? The Islamic finance sector has significant growth potential, particularly in the Muslim-majority countries across Middle East, Africa, Turkey, and Southeast Asia. Having said that, we don't expect a big takeoff, rather a steady progression. The emphasis of governments to grow this industry is driving legislative and regulatory support, flurry of mergers and acquisitions, and demand from the banking customers. But just to put things into perspective, across the core markets, conventional loans grew at the rate of 2% between 2016 and third quarter of 2022, while Islamic banking assets grew 12%. During the same period, Islamic finance remains underpenetrated in these core markets and hence presents long term growth potential. Okay, thanks for that. I mean, 12% versus 2%, that sounds like a a pretty interesting uh, differential compared to conventional financing. Um, So I'm quite excited about that. But let's, let's bring that back to 2023, right? I mean, what is your general outlook for Islamic finance this year? Maybe you could touch on both uh, Sukuk. What are we expecting for Sukuk issuance? And, and what are your kind of key themes for Islamic banking this year? Sure. Demand for Sharia compliant instruments across the four pillars that are Islamic banking, Sukuk, Islamic asset managers, and Takaful continue to rise in 2023. 
This will be supported by strong economic growth associated with robust oil prices and ambitious development agendas in the core Islamic markets. Let's talk about each of these verticals. On the banking side, Islamic assets in key markets are expected to grow at a higher rate compared to the conventional assets supported by three main factors. First, macroeconomic conditions are expected to remain robust. Second, sovereigns in these countries continue to provide strong support for the development of the industry. And lastly, there is growing demand from Sharia-compliant products from corporations and individuals. In fact, we've been seeing this trend of Islamic assets outgrowing conventional assets for some time now, with the market share of Islamic finance assets in core Islamic markets have increased to 37% of total financing assets as of September 2022, from 35% as of December 2021. Now, moving to the Sukuk side, Sukuk issuances declined by 10% in 2022 due to unfavorable market conditions and lower sovereign funding needs in Southeast Asia and the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, which consist of Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. However, we expect issuance volumes to stabilize around this level, taking into account increasing financing needs from Southeast Asian sovereigns and higher issuance activity from banks and corporates. Nevertheless, Malaysia remains the largest market for Sukuk, followed by Saudi Arabia. In terms of Islamic funds, which includes asset managers across the core markets, demand will remain resilient. The natural crossover between Sharia principles and sustainable investment will appeal to investors whose decisions are guided by environmental, social, and governance, also known as ESG considerations, creating more opportunities for the Islamic finance industry. And finally, we expect the Kafal premiums, which is the Islamic insurance industry, to keep growing moderately over the next two to three years, helped by the economic activity and the rising demand for medical insurance in some of these core markets. Got it, Nishish. That's, that's a really helpful summary. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a, a mixed bag if I if I'm interpreting things correctly. Um, you know, banking and and Takaful all you know posting modest growth, but maybe a little bit more challenged. Um, so, hell, I'd like to get your your take on that. I mean, um, Nishish was using words like resilient and, and modest growth. I mean, do you agree with that, or are you seeing maybe a slightly different picture from your side? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Look, I, I broadly agree. I think notwithstanding the slowdown in the economy that we're experiencing here in the West, uh, and we will do so for at least the rest of the year, I think the sector will be pretty resilient. The economic outlook in the Middle East and on also parts of Asia is much more bullish. And we know from our own experience as a firm that economic ac activity out there is uh, holding up reasonably well, partly because the region is just benefiting from the investment away from Russia. But in terms of themes and trends for the Islamic finance sector, I think digitalization is the big one. It's uh, a key theme in Islamic banking. And we're seeing a number of the leading Islamic banks really innovate at quite some pace. So Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, we know, has been working with Visa recently to launch the region's first tokenized contactless payment wearables. And I know also that Dubai Islamic Bank, they've also just recently announced the launch of an Islamic auto financing uh, with a fully digital application process for their Tesla customers in the UAE. But in terms of Sukuk issuance, I think the pace will definitely be slower 
in 2023, naturally because of market volatility. But I do think, I agree with Nitesh, that it will remain a key source of funding in Islamic finance markets. We know and we're seeing uh, that there is demand still on the investor side. And conversely, you've clearly got refinancing needs of issuers. So I think the uh, Sukuk market will remain fairly, fairly robust. No, awesome. Thanks very much, Sahil. I mean, some of those digitalization trends that you, you just talked about, really fascinating. It's definitely something to watch. Um, Nitish, maybe coming back to you, I mean, you, know, you and I have talked uh, for many years about some of the new growth markets for uh, Islamic banking in, in particular. Uh, and I'm thinking of places like Pakistan, uh, Tunisia, you know, several countries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but I guess it's also fair to say that a number of these countries are in the middle of their own uh, debt sustainability challenges. So how are these conditions going to affect the development of Islamic banking in these countries, do you, do you think? Indeed, the new growth markets you mentioned seems to be facing their own challenges, and this will impact the growth of Islamic finance in these markets. However, to put things into context again, it's a small part of the global Islamic finance market. These countries underpin more long-term growth prospects of the industry, and once out of the woods, will present significant upside risk. Let's talk about Bangladesh. We expect the growth of Islamic banks in Bangladesh to slow down in 2023, despite first nine months of 2022, where they grew faster than the conventional banks, primarily underpinned by their expansion of their networks. Our expectation is, driven by the overall tight funding situation, decrease in remittances, and slower savings growth, partly due to elevated inflation. The investment to deposit ratio of Islamic banks was at its regulatory ceiling as of September last year. At the same time, there have been negative news related to financing irregularities at some of the Islamic banks. For these reasons, we believe Islamic banks in Bangladesh are more vulnerable to the tightening of liquidity than the conventional counterparts. Now turning to Pakistan, Islamic banking assets there have grown by an average of 24% per annum over the past decade, lifting Islamic banking penetration to around 20% of the total banking assets, up from 8% in 2011. The State Bank of Pakistan announced in January 2023 plans to expand Islamic banking share to 35% from the 20% recently. The objective is to eventually end the interest-based banking system. However, the full conversion of the sector may prove difficult to achieve. We do believe, given the strong momentum across the board for Islamic finance, we expect Sharia-compliant banking to grow significantly over the next few years, pushing up the sector's market share to around 30%. Okay, thanks for that. So it sounds like, from, from what you're saying, that you know, despite you know some of the challenges that I talked about, it doesn't seem to be affecting um, really the growth potential or some of the recent growth that we've seen in in recent years. You know, in, in Pakistan, that's certainly very encouraging. Um, maybe Sahel, maybe I can I can talk to you about this particular topic. I mean, a number of the sovereigns I mentioned just now, you know, have either defaulted recently um, or have a very low rating implying high levels of default risk and and i guess many of them have issued a sukuk in the last few years either in local or, or foreign currency you know i'm thinking of countries like ghana pakistan and, and nigeria 
Uh, and I guess we've also had the restructuring of Garuda Airlines in, in Indonesia. That was an interesting thing. So from your perspective, I mean, how do Sukuk instruments fit into this broader discussion around debt restructuring? And, and do you think investors should be any more concerned when thinking about recovery expectations for, for Sukuk in particular? Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, Scott. Sukuk have come under real scrutiny in recent years uh, as a result of some really high-profile defaults. As you say, Garuda Airlines last year defaulted on on its $500 million Sukuk, and then we've uh, recently seen the Malaysian Serbo-Dynamic oil and gas Sukuk uh, default last year. But a lot of this has been caused by macroeconomic conditions. So in the Malaysian Serbo-Dynamic case, the issuer quite clearly came and cited COVID-related cash flow constraints as the reason. And of course, we know that with Garuda Airlines, they were just massively impacted by the pandemic and therefore the lack of travel. So so I think in many respects, I don't think the issue necessarily is a Sukuk one, such that investors should be concerned about recovery any more than they would for a conventional bond, say. It's not like, for example, the challenge to the Dana Gasuk a few years ago, which was much more about the Sharia compliance and therefore the the validity of the Sukuk instrument, which you know would have had potentially far greater ramifications uh, for Sukuk investors more broadly. If there are concerns with Sukuk these days, I think they're to do with the lack of standardization internationally in the Sukuk industry. The fact there isn't one particular clear standard as to what it should look like. And the fact that there is this additional layer of Sharia requirements that comes with a Sukuk, and that then potentially makes Sukuk default resolution more complicated and subject to potentially different laws and courts. And that's clearly what we saw with the Dharma Gas Sukuk case, which was being fought both in the Sharjah courts and the UK courts. And there were issues relating to governing law and jurisdiction, as well as the Sharia compliant aspect. But I think Sukuk instruments are, and they are going to remain really important to debt restructuring discussions. We've seen that already with Garuda Airlines. So they've already issued $80 million late last year. And then also one of uh, Saudi Arabia's biggest builders, Asmeel, uh, recently agreed with its creditors the approval for a restructuring of their $2 billion debt. So I think Sukuk will remain at the forefront of restructuring debt discussions going forwards. Thanks, Sahel. I mean, you make a really good point about Standardization, I mean, it's something that we've discussed about and witnessed and looked at for, for a number of years now. I want to finish on a slightly different topic that is ESG. I mean, uh, Natish mentioned it earlier when, when looking at the outlook for, for Islamic banking. I guess we've talked for many years about, you know, some of the crossover and, and similarities between Islamic finance and, and sustainable finance more broadly. But I guess we've also seen more scrutiny over perceived greenwashing for sustainable bonds. So how does the cook fit into this general story and, and and i guess how prepared do you think islamic banks are and more generally in dealing with some of these issues yeah it's a great question you're absolutely right esg is the absolute buzzword at the moment i mean i hear and see so many products uh, investments uh, instruments just being described and labeled these days as green or sustainable partly because there's just so much pressure to do so. It's what investors want, it's what they're looking for, uh, and it's also what regulators require. It's where the capital breaks are being offered. But but my concern is that some of the less sophisticated players in the market don't necessarily understand the risks of just labeling a bond 
or a product as sustainable or green without actually having the uh, the data or the analysis to sit behind it and to support it. And that presents a real risk, uh, not only from a regulatory perspective, but also a litigation perspective, because you've got so many interested stakeholders in this sector, You know whether it's investors themselves who've been promised that a product will be green, whether it's NGOs who are looking at these, whether it's shareholders, because the returns have not been great, or whether it's activists who are just generally interested in this area. But with regards to Sukuk, I think more can and should be done around standardization as you as you as you allude to you know that there are you know critical questions that i think you know could be and should be addressed you know what constitutes a green sukuk you know and what proportion of the proceeds proceeds should go to green projects to make it a green sukuk and then what constitutes a green product you know how do you measure impact if you're saying this is an impact fund for example but we're seeing some you know, really great examples of Islamic banks now trying to tackle this area and, and starting to develop their own sustainable finance frameworks. So, for example, Dubai Islamic Bank is a great example. They launched their own sustainable finance framework uh, late last year. They've they've come out and said that they intend to use uh, this framework as, as the basis now going forward to issue their green social or sustainability sukuks and, and, and indeed other financing instruments. Uh, and they've had this sustainable finance framework assessed by the ISS ESG, which is the uh, Institutional Shareholder Service. Uh, And they've concluded, having looked at Dubai Islamic Bank's sustainable finance framework, that the framework is aligned to the international capital markets, green social and sustainability bond guidelines, as well as the LMA, green and social loan principles. And I know also that there are others out there. So Global Ethical Finance Initiative, who work very closely with the Islamic Finance Council, they've been doing some really great work in this space to really try and promote and enhance the idea of global Islamic and ethical finance in the industry. So I think that direction of travel is fantastic, albeit there's still a long way to go. That's a really positive and, and great note to, to finish on. Thank you very much, Sahel, for that. I guess it's it's fair to say that despite a very challenging Macro outlook, uh, Islamic finance seems to be one of the, the bright spots with um, you know, a good outlook for growth this year. Thank you, Sahail. Thank you, Natish, for a really insightful discussion today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Join us next time for another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded. And in the meantime, if you have any comments or topic suggestions for us, please feel free to email at empodcast at moody's.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.